Hello again. This is Jim Bartlett. Welcome to my podcast. It's a companion to my website. The hits just keep on coming. This episode is called Have Yourself an Easy Listening Christmas. I grew up in a musical house. Mother and dad listened to the radio, bought records, and sang in the church choir. My brothers and I took music lessons and played in the school band. A spare bedroom in the house is known as the piano room, where mother's upright piano was sat since the day she and dad moved in before I was born. This time of year, Mother would play Christmas songs on her piano. We also liked to put a big stack of Christmas records on the console stereo, filling the house with music while we put up the tree or decorated Christmas cookies or just for atmosphere. Mother and Dad's collection included a lot of the promotional Christmas records that proliferated during the 1960s, such as the Goodyear and Firestone compilations you could buy at the tire and auto stores and the ones you could get at the True Value hardware store. But none of those was my favorite among Mother and Dad's albums. My favorite was called The Spirit of Christmas with the Living Strings. But before I can tell you about that, I have to tell you something else. In the late 1950s and early 60s, the typical purchaser of what was then high-end audio equipment was not a kid listening to Buddy Holly or the Beatles. It was his older brother, or perhaps his father, who'd been weaned on the pop music of an earlier era, or on classical music. Lushly orchestrated pop and classical albums became very popular among audiophiles, and producing them became big business thanks to the introduction of stereo sound. In 1957, the Philadelphia-based Essex label began to license recordings from German orchestras and released them under the name of 101 Strings and other names later on. It wasn't long before the major record labels got into the string game the same way, licensing various orchestral recordings and releasing them under a brand name specific to the label. The Living Strings was RCA's brand. Capital's brand was the Holly Ridge Strings. VJ had the Castaway Strings. Warner Brothers had the Londonderry Strings. And even Chess, the famous Chicago blues and R&B label, had the Soulful Strings. Other string brands of the day included the Golden Gate Strings, the Knightsbridge Strings, and the San Remo Golden Strings, each specific to a different record label. Albums released under these brands were calculated to attract record shop browsers, frequently adorned with splashy covers, sometimes featuring scantily clad women, and often budget-priced. 101 Strings charted four albums in all. The Soul of Spain made it to number 9 in 1959, which makes it the highest charting of all the string brand albums. The Hollyridge Strings charted five albums between 1964 and 1966, covering pop and early rock and roll hits. The Soulful Strings made the Billboard 200 album chart five times between 1967 and 1969, covering mostly R&B and jazz hits. The Living Strings charted only two albums, both in 1961. But with chart success or without it, string brands represented a pretty solid income stream for their labels, and they gained a good deal of radio airplay, too. The San Remo Golden Strings on the Detroit label Rick Tick made the Hot 100 a couple of times in 1965, including Hungry for Love, which went all the way into the top 40 and is probably the biggest of the string brand singles, although I can never rule out having missed something, and I hope you will tell me if I did. Several other string brands made the Hot 100 without making the top 40, including the Hollyridge Strings, who hit with a version of the Beatles' Love Me Do at the height of Beatlemania in 1964, and the Soulful Strings, whose Burning Spear hit in 1968. But back to the Living Strings. RCA released Living Strings albums on its budget label, Camden. Camden albums were sold at a discount compared to the list price of other albums, and that's most likely how my parents got their copy of The Spirit of Christmas. Hey, this looks good and it's cheap. Let's buy it. It was a mono version, but I doubt they noticed. I don't know when they got it. It was released in 1963, and it could have been then, but whenever it was, I can't remember a Christmas at home without it. 
When I moved away and started building my own Christmas music library, it had a living string-sized hole in it that persisted until the early 90s when I found a stereo copy at a flea market. It didn't have the skip in White Christmas that had been in Mother and Dad's copy, but to this day, when I play the album, I hear the skip in my head. The Spirit of Christmas with the Living Strings was arranged and conducted by Johnny Douglas, which means that the orchestra on it is most likely either the BBC Symphony or the London Symphony Orchestra. Douglas had a lengthy career scoring films, radio shows, and TV shows in his native Britain, and RCA Records often licensed the BBC and London symphonies for Living Strings records. So the musicians on The Spirit of Christmas were among the best and most recorded in the world for all their anonymity. Nothing on the album showcases their artistry better than Silver Bells, lush and rich and beautifully arranged, with a clarinet solo that isn't just lyrical, but actually soulful.
Long after most radio stations had stopped playing lush instrumentals on the regular, Christmas albums by the likes of the Holly Ridge Strings and the Living Strings remained in radio station music libraries, either for use as music beds in commercials or for airplay on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. I can remember using them well into the 1980s. From 1987 to 1990, I worked at a radio station that played elevator music, those orchestrated covers of familiar pop songs interspersed with complimentary vocals with two or three seconds of dead air between each song. It ran on big reels of tape in a room full of automation machinery, and the jocks talked maybe three times an hour. Working there was more fun than you'd think, and the station sounded better than you'd expect, but those are stories for another time. Radio stations did not go all Christmas around Halloween back then. In fact, no station I knew of back then would ever play Christmas music before Black Friday. On the elevator music station, we would start dropping it into our regular programming early in December, gradually upping the percentage of it as Christmas approached. At noon on Christmas Eve, we would load up all of the machines with Christmas music and let it roll. We were pretty sure that for 36 hours every year, from noon Christmas Eve to midnight Christmas night, we were the undisputed number one station in the market. Stations playing contemporary pop, rock, or country didn't offer the same kind of listening experience we did, thanks to the Living Strings, the Holly Ridge Strings, and our generic term for all of them, the Swelling Strings Orchestra. With Nat King Cole and Bing Crosby and the rest, all the classic pop songs and familiar carols of Christmas, we delivered 180-proof holiday atmosphere. On December 26th, however, people who had kept us on throughout the holiday would go back to their contemporary pop, rock, or country stations. What was it about our music on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day? And what's going on today when the radio Christmas canon is made up of recordings that are 50, 60, some almost 80 years old, yet hungrily consumed by people who spend the other 11 months of the year listening to Shawn Mendes and Panic! at the Disco? I've thought about it for a long time, and here's what I think I think. When you watch TV tonight, take note of the ads. How many, overtly or by implication, refer to an old-fashioned Christmas? Look at the pictures on the Christmas cards, if you still get them or send them. How many have a nostalgic Courier and Ives look, show carolers in Victorian garb, or Christmas trees decorated with candles and strings of popcorn? How about the Christmas cookie recipe at your house? Has it been handed down in the family? How many family traditions do you repeat each year? Do you bake cookies only at Christmas time? At Christmas, we venerate the past, but that isn't all we're doing when we observe these old-time rituals. To a certain extent, we're trying to become the people we used to be. Back then, we were younger. People we love and have lost were still with us. Life was less complicated, we think. Simpler things made us happy, we think. And at Christmas time, we were the happiest of all, we think. Life in the present can't measure up. So we acknowledge, consciously or not, that today's celebrations, whatever form they take, aren't just like the ones we used to know. And we grasp at whatever we can to make them feel more like they're supposed to. That accounts for the pull of home-baked cookies and Victoriana and, for many people, old songs. For some, the lush orchestral music of the season. Especially the latter, because the perfect soundtrack for an old-fashioned celebration would epitomize our idealized past. It would be best if it had little or no referent in the modern world at all. It would have to be without the postmodern irony that infuses so much popular art today. It would have to be music that is exactly what it sounds like. That's what those old-fashioned Christmas albums are. Nothing else does what they do. I could not do a podcast episode called Have Yourself an Easy Listening Christmas without talking about A Charlie Brown Christmas by the Vince Guaraldi Trio, even if many people who liked the living strings in the mid-60s might have considered its cool contemporary jazz to be weird long hair music. TV programming executives at CBS were skeptical about A Charlie Brown Christmas. 
They thought the show would be wacky fun, not quiet and contemplative, so the first thing they asked for was a laugh track. They didn't like the voices of real children and would have preferred adult voice actors. The show's condemnation of commercialism was at odds with a company that made its living selling commercial time, and neither did CBS care for Vince Guaraldi's contemporary jazz soundtrack. Guaraldi had been invited to compose and perform the music after his performance of Cast Your Fate to the Wind became a hit in 1965. It had the feel the producers wanted, even if Charles Schultz himself was a little skeptical about it. For all their objections, CBS was contractually obligated to put the show on, and when they did, on December 9, 1965, they found out that they were completely wrong about everything. The show finished second in the weekly ratings and eventually won a Peabody Award. Since its first broadcast, it's become a television classic, and its music is every bit as famous and enduring. The soundtrack album from A Charlie Brown Christmas is quite an interesting story itself. Some of the songs heard on the album are not in the show, and some of the performances in the show are different from the ones heard on the album. In fact, Guaraldi is backed on the album by two different drummers and two different bassists, making up the Vince Guaraldi trio. But in whatever combination they play, the music they made remains magical decades later.
In the decades since its release, a Charlie Brown Christmas has become an American perennial, sold by the millions. I bought it three times myself, on vinyl in the early 80s, on CD in the late 80s, and most recently in 2006 when I bought the remastered CD with bonus tracks and ripped it to my digital music stash. Some albums simply wear out on us. We love them for years, we listen to them a million times, we know they're great and or historically important, but we simply don't need to hear them anymore. For me, a Charlie Brown Christmas isn't there yet. Like the spirit of Christmas with the living strings, it makes the Christmas season feel the way it's supposed to feel. We wish you a Merry Christmas, There are certain instrumental hits of the 1960s whose titles were a mystery I didn't solve until years later. These songs were sometimes used as program themes or by radio stations for timing purposes. It's an old DJ trick for when you have to air a network newscast or some other program that starts at a predetermined moment like the top of the hour, and you find yourself with a little time left to fill before it starts. You play an instrumental and then just fade out of it when you need to. The most famous of the Taking Us Up to News Time hits was Last Date by Nashville pianist Floyd Kramer. I didn't learn the name of that until I got into radio myself. The same was true of a famous Christmas instrumental. I'd hear it on radio or TV every year, but since it wasn't in Mother and Dad's record collection, I never knew what it was called. Do you? That's Jingo Django, recorded by the German bandleader Bert Kempfert in 1963 on an album called Christmas Wonderland. Kempfert is one of the superstars of easy listening with a highly recognizable style, often featuring a bass guitar beat. Kempfert recorded dozens of albums between the late 50s and the late 70s. His single Wonderland by Night went to number one on the Hot 100 in 1961, and he hit the adult contemporary charts as late as 1971. He also wrote several famous songs, including the easy-listening classics Strangers in the Night, recorded by Frank Sinatra, and Spanish Eyes, made famous by Al Martino. Kemfort may be best remembered, however, as the record executive who gave label approval for the Beatles' first releases as the Beat Brothers, backing singer Tony Sheridan. I have a second Living Strings album in my collection called The Sound of Christmas that is obviously a different orchestra from the one on The Spirit of Christmas, which we heard earlier. 
It's an orchestra that includes the same sort of plucked but suppressed bass guitar Kempfert favored. It's not him, I don't think. Decca probably wouldn't have licensed the work of its star bandleader to a competing label. But in 1970, when The Sound of Christmas was released, any similarity would not have been coincidental. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please visit my website, The Hits Just Keep On Coming, which you can easily find if you put that phrase into your favorite search engine. And if you have enjoyed this podcast, please consider coming back for another episode of it and listen to other episodes. You can find them at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, and Stitcher. If you are listening on a platform where you can give it a like or a positive rating, please do. Bookmark my SoundCloud page or subscribe to my website for announcements regarding new episodes. I'm Jim Bartlett. Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, have a nice weekend, whatever fits, and thank you for listening.